Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress that is trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. It's a great mattress at a very reasonable price point. Comes with a 20-year warranty and a great deal for our listeners. Douglas is giving you a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That is douglas.ca slash CanadaLand. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health here in Toronto. Cutting-edge, state-of-the-art, compassionate facility. Right now, it is Mental Health Awareness Week. This is the time when they need you most. This is the time when you can make a real difference when it comes to doing something about the mental health crisis and the devastating opioid epidemic, the overdose epidemic that we're currently experiencing, losing 20 people every day. They need your help. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help CAMH treat addiction and build hope. Julian McKenzie, hello. Hey, how are you doing? Good. Julian is a staff editor at The Athletic and a podcaster. Welcome to the show. It's a pleasure and an honor to be here. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you too. I'm Emily Nicola, sitting in for Jesse Brown this week. Today, we are talking about a scandal, a sex scandal in Canada's secret sport, hockey, obviously. And we're also trying to unpack the crypto craze and crash. Welcome to Shortcuts, when we talk shit about the news. This episode is brought to you by Tammy Ruffolo, Raymond Lévesque, Jane Medis, Jess McNabb, Sean McMahon, Mike Risavi, Tara Kapeluk, and Eric. Hey there, this is Eric uh, Kelch calling in from the West Coast. I uh, just like to throw my support for Canada Land. And uh, the reason I signed up was just because I think that we need responsible, transparent media as part of this country. And I haven't seen anybody do that better than than the folks at Canada Land. Uh, yeah, thanks to you guys and, and thanks for making the show. It's It's entertaining every time. A stunning admission at a committee hearing into an alleged gang rape by junior hockey players at a Hockey Canada Foundation charity event in 2018. It's not the Parliament Hill penalty box, but Hockey Canada executives were certainly on the hot seat. Hockey Canada's senior leadership dragged onto the Parliament Hill carpet to explain how and why they settled a $3.5 million lawsuit 
brought by a woman who was allegedly assaulted by a group of unnamed junior hockey players in 2018 following a London, Ontario gala. Wow. So that's a lot. Julian, have you been following this story, first of all? Yeah, I've been doing my best to to follow reporting from Rick Westhead and, and Katie Strang at The Athletic has been doing a great job with this. They wrote a piece uh, with Ian Mendez and, and Dan Robson, basically giving a bit of a broad overview of junior hockey culture earlier this week. And on one of the shows I host, uh, The Chris Johnston Show, where I, I work with an insider, Chris Johnston, uh, whenever we have the opportunity to kind of talk about what's been out there and what's been reported on, we try to explain to viewers who might not be up on this story what's going on. I think it's a it's a particularly important story, and I'm actually just really amazed at how from the announcement of it to where we're at now, where like moments before we started recording, TSN put up a story about how Pascal St. Ange, the Minister of Sport, uh, is saying that they're going to freeze funding for Hockey Canada until they sign up with a federal agency that allows them to independently receive and investigate abuse complaints and issue sanctions for inappropriate behavior. That's literally from the copy from TSN. I guess I'm more skeptical about these stories whenever they come up, and and I wonder how you know people generally care about them. But the fact that the Canadian government has taken this power this position of not letting the story fall by the wayside. That's the biggest striking thing for me. Yeah, so there's a lot in what you just said. So just for for those who maybe haven't been following that that story, I'm just going to maybe unpack it for, for a little bit. So on Monday, we heard from Hockey Canada that they were being interrogated at a standing committee on Canadian Heritage at Parliament about the incident that took place in 2018. Why? Basically, Hockey Canada is receiving public funds. So there, there is basically an audit that's been triggered into, you know, how the public funds that Hockey Canada is receiving, whether or not they've been, they've been used to settle a lawsuit where a young woman alleged that she was sexually assaulted by eight major junior hockey players after a Hockey Canada golf tournament in London, Ontario, back in 2018. So, in that lawsuit, the co-defendants were only named as John Doe from one to eight. They are unnamed. And the lawsuit was settled for undisclosed amount as well. And we still don't know the identity of the junior hockey players who are not junior anymore. Many of them are actually probably playing in the NHL. And that's the story in which this is taking place. And I say maybe another context of the story is it's going to sound unrelated, but it kind of isn't. Is what's been going on in the Canadian military as well with allegations of sexual assault as well and how the Canadian government has been in the hot seat trying to do something about that. There's been allegations as well of, of toxic sexist conduct in the RCMP, more than allegations. And so I, I don't know if it plays a role there, but it feels like whenever there's government sort of involved in something, there's been a pressure to really show that they're serious in cracking down on, on the culture. But on this incident itself... Hockey Canada said they learned about the incident the day after the golf tournament and they conducted an investigation through a third-party law firm. The law firm that they chose is Heinen Hutchison, which is staffed by one of the lawyers who defended Giant Gomeshi, Small World. So Hockey Canada maintains that they still don't know the identity of the players in the midst of all this. Players were encouraged to participate in the investigation, but it was not mandatory. Four to six that did not cooperate? Or that, four to six that did. That were able to participate in a discussion and beyond that, I don't know. My, my goodness. So 
the vast majority of the players did not participate or did not cooperate with the investigation? Is I, that, I can't is answer that? that. I apologize. I don't know for sure, but I can tell you that because of the incomplete report, there is not much more that we have to offer in terms of information along those lines. Madam Chair, if I may, um, I, yes. I believe the number is larger than that. I, I just don't have it at my fingertips. I may be able to pull it out in some of my reference documents here. Um, I'm like you. I've, if I was in the Canadian public, I'd want to know that that we did everything we could to determine what happened that evening. So players were encouraged to participate in an internal investigation, but it looks a bit what we've just heard in that is wasn't mandatory. Julian, you've been covering this. How are you surprised, not only just by the government response, but by how Hockey Canada is responding to the incident or has responded to the incident so far? Like, it's more disappointed, I guess, than anything, I guess. And that's me just looking at the human side of it. Just with, even if they are allegations, this is a very tough story to take in and to hear that players or the John Doe's in the situation were not as cooperative in this story just kind of reeks of like, it, it's just not a good feeling. It's just not a good thing to just hear again from a human standpoint. What happened a lot, I think when the story broke, a lot of people started just running to like the 2018 uh, world junior roster. And they were trying to figure out like which player could be in it. And, and at the time when the story broke, there were like a handful of players on that roster who were playing in the Stanley Cup playoffs right now. And at least one of them now, uh, Kale McCarr, who plays for the Colorado Avalanche, went out of their way to say that they were not involved and they, that they would cooperate with the investigation. But that's really the only player we really know who'd be willing to participate in this. Mm -hmm. So when you hear that some of the other players are, are, are not willing to do this, whether it's because of some NDA that's signed or anything like that, like it's... We're not made of stone here. It's it's very it's very suspicious. Yeah, it's it's this weird thing where we know which team the players were a part of, but there is very few journalists who've been naming all the list of the players on that on, on on that team because it kind of implies that some of them may have committed this horrible act. And so it's even from a journalistic standpoint, it's also very icky to kind of figure out how do you even write about this kind of story. Do you feel like there's been a lot of ethical dilemmas even in your own work and in the work of the, your colleagues that people have been unsure about how to write about this? I can't speak for my colleagues who have been more directly reporting on this, but like I, I imagine the difficulty in getting some of the names, I guess, would kind of create that dilemma because they're John Doe's. I've seen a few people on Twitter try to just kind of figure it out for themselves. Ken Campbell, who used to work at the Hockey News, has has also been on this as well, trying to figure out who's been involved or whatever. And you hear from people say, oh, I think it might be this person or that person. But like, unless you really get it on record, like I, I can imagine there definitely would be some kind of ethical issue to kind of run into for this. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's interesting because now it went to Parliament in the last week. I guess the initial round of, of media coverage from this uh, the story was broke originally by TSN, but now because the minister is involved, there's even been comment from the Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, Ottawa-based you know political reporters who've basically picked up on the story and have been doing a lot of the later reporting on it, which leaves me also wondering, you know, where do sports journalists fit in when a story about sports become a political story? 
Do you feel like people know what their role is in terms of carving that story? Is there more analysis that should, needs to be to be done on the sports side of thing? You just mentioned earlier that there's been some deeper digging, for example, into the culture of junior hockey. How do you divide basically the work be- between the political stories that the Hill journalists are covering and just the broader sports journalism that needs to still be happening on a story like this? That's a really interesting question. It should also be noted, too, that uh, the National Hockey League also said that they were going to investigate this. When Gary Bettman and Bill Daly, the league commissioner and the deputy uh, commissioner, spoke at uh, the Stanley Cup Finals a couple of days ago, they said that, well, Gary Bettman said that he assumes that the league would post their findings on this. And people asked about this during the Stanley Cup final. That's also where we heard Kale McCarr speak his piece about the ordeal. So I think if you're a sports journalist on this, like I think there is definitely an entry point for you to to cover this. And I think if you're in a situation where yeah. you work at TSN and you know a guy like Rick Westhead has been able to kind of shoulder the load and on, on these types of stories. I know if I was there or or at least with Katie Shrine now at the Athletic, like I, I know I before we got on here, I tried to just kind of let that team of people know that that TSN story about uh, freezing public funds went up. I feel if you're in a position where you could help on, on that reporting, absolutely you should. In terms of how it gets on that political side, like this is where you really lean on more of your senior, more well-learned journalists to help get that process out. And I think because it affects sport, and I think the fact hockey in particular, the culture, especially the last how many years, has been under such a microscope for, for criticism because of the treatment of players coming up from junior leagues into the National Hockey League. We're a couple months out from the disastrous Kyle Beach story, which Rick Westhead, again, at the forefront of that. For context, for people who don't know, Kyle Beach was a draft pick of the Chicago Blackhawks. 2008 was when he was drafted. They were a rookie at the time, part of the Chicago Blackhawks organization. And they alleged that a video coach by the name of Brad Aldrich essentially took advantage of them and sexually assaulted them. And when they tried to report it to their team, essentially there were people in the organization who knew, but sufficient action was not taken. And this was also around the time when the facts were starting to come out, around the time when the team was going on its run to the 2010 Stanley Cup, which they ended up winning. And... The video coach, Brad Aldrich, was able to be around the team after the fact when they won. And when he left the organization, it was alleged that he was given a reference letter to work for another organization. He was able to leave Chicago and was able to work for a school. And there were more allegations that followed him after that with younger students. This is a person who has been able to take advantage of people, allegedly, And it's only been in the last year or so where his story, Brad Aldrich, has come to light. And Kyle Beach was originally listed as John Doe in a lawsuit directed towards the Chicago Blackhawks. And Rick Westhead from TSN, all over that story, brought that to light. And in late fall of last year, a big interview went out on TSN. Kyle, thank you very much for joining us uh, to talk about this. Thanks for having me, Rick. Um, and thank you for all you've done throughout this process since it first became public knowledge. Um, without you and your reporting, I'm not sure if we would be here today. So I want to thank you first. The identity was revealed and then Kyle Beach agreed to reveal who he was. And he explained what had happened and why he was doing the lawsuit and 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 explained it to, to request that. And it was, it was a very impactful, very, very disturbing yeah, it was it was a tough interview to watch for everybody. 
And there was a massive fallout where numbers of people from the Blackhawks organization resigned as a result. And people who were associated with them at the time, who were in different positions, were also called to resign. And people were asking a lot of questions about their roles and everything. So, yeah, it was a it was a very big deal in the sporting world. And just like how people are, are wondering how, you know, what are the roles of sports journalists in covering stories with Hockey Canada? A lot of people were asking that of hockey journalists around that story as well. And honestly, like you were making the connections to other sexual assault instances with other big entities and organizations around the country with the military. I can't help but think of how even in Canada, even if we're talking about a franchise based in the States, because of what hockey means to this country, I can't help but think of how people reacted to the Kyle Beach story across Canada, especially because of that interview that was posted Mm -hmm. with Rick Westhead talking to Kyle Beach. That just adds to how this culture is, at least a lot of people feel it's not a good culture to be in with, with hockey, with the treatment of people. And I can't help but think that for people in power who have an opportunity to do something like what Pascal Saint-Don is trying to do now, what it seems like, I can't help but think that they have that Kyle Beach story in the back of their minds because of how it resonated with so many people. That's just that's just my gut feeling on it. But it's interesting you mentioned people in power. Are certain sports journalists or definitely sports commentator, you know, sports personality that are beloved by thousands, it's not million of people, are they also not people in position of power in a certain way when it comes to that kind of story to kind of like craft a conversation on where the sport should, should go or trying to address, you know, sexism in, in the sport or racism in the sport when, when it happens? Do you feel like sports journalists know where they stand or what their role could be when it comes to those kind of stories? I definitely think that they have a role to play in this. And I think people who consume content nowadays have every right to ask more of us to cover these stories properly and not just provide, you know, what's happening in free agency or what's happening via trade. If we are able to ask those questions and we are able to be in those scrums and and ask those questions, I think we can. Like, I think back to when the NHL was speaking after the Kyle Beach instance where Rick Westhead was in the Zoom. Everyone was waiting for Rick Westhead to ask a question. It took one of my colleagues, Pierre Lebrun, to, to call attention to the fact that he wasn't getting asked the question. That's an opportunity for people in power, the insiders, so to speak, the people who make it their job to seek out information beyond the box score to get stuff like that. I can't answer directly for each of them on why some of them might not get involved or why they might feel the way that they might feel. But I think that if you are a hockey fan, I don't think there's anything wrong with them asking more of us. And I say us as collectively as as sports journalists for covering these types of stories. I don't think there's anything wrong with you know, using your platform to discuss these stories if you have one, if you're in a position of power to do so, and to not just simply ignore it. I think just with how politics and, and sports and, and all these other types of stories of we know they can blend together, they can come together. Like, I think if you're coming into this game, you're just thinking that sports is just a distraction from everything else. Like, it's a bit of a naive take. Like, I think it's okay to ask more from people. Uh, to cover these stories in a way that's acceptable and not just think that, okay, I can just get away with just sticking to sports. Like, we can't do that. Yeah, I guess that's where I'm coming from with this reflection. And I really enjoy having this conversation with you on on this because right now, today, you know, we're talking about hockey, but there's so many other 
sports and there are so many other incidents or events that are taking place in which I feel like the same ethical dilemma is playing out. Just last weekend, it was the, the Grand Prix, the F, uh, Formula One Grand Prix here in Montreal. And year after year, I feel like whenever the Grand Prix is around, there's the same conversation as well when there's some journalists who are usually not sports journalists, that's not their beat, who are questioning, you know, whether the Grand Prix should be happening at all given the role of sexual tourism that increases in the city every year. And now there's more people as well who have the environmental beat, questioning as well how polluting that kind of event is. And so you have that going on. And then you have, like, over the weekend, you have the people who are like, okay, so here's the race, here's who's in front, here's why it's exciting. And I feel like those are people sometimes are working in the same news organization, But it feels from the outside, right? It's just somebody's listening or observing this. It feels like two parts of the same brain just not <laughs> talking to each other or just not uh, trying to articulate a, a kind of a coherent narrative. And I don't know what to do with it. There's also like the World Cup that's about to take place in Qatar. And there's also a lot of journalism happening on, you know, how the stadium got built and the human rights valuation of migrant workers who've been working to build a stadium then. And there's, there's also a lot of just like, yay, World Cup, soccer fans, let's just go. And yeah, I, I really don't know how that works within the same news organization or within, you know, colleagues to just be able to maybe speak to one and the other at the same time instead of just, you know, pretending one doesn't exist so that we can do our job of like cheering on the players and the athletes who usually have nothing to do with the politics that surrounds them. Do you see what I'm saying in terms of a disconnect between those two kind of journalism or do you feel like it's more connected and I'm just not seeing it? I can understand why you feel that way, because like one summer, I actually helped out the Montreal Gazette cover F1. And basically, my job was just to like find stories that were had nothing, not necessarily had nothing to do with what was going on on the track. But like little like, you know, if I get to hang out in like the little like interview area, I get an interview with an F1 driver, like fine, I can make it work. There was like a protest, I think, on the on the on the morning of and i think it was to do with like the extinction of animals and i, I kind of wrote like a mention of it that is a good question i can see why people think there is a bit of a disconnect because at the end of the day like at an event like f1 there's still like a whole bunch of people who are going to want to know like okay well what about the race like what happened with these guys there's a whole market of people who are into f1 so i guess yep. people want that coverage of course and with the fifa world cup i think Of every country that is in the World Cup this year, you can make an argument if you're a journalist and you are having the toughest time going through the fine line of, you know, dealing with the migrant workers and, and slave labor, building up Qatar and also the excitement of it. I think Canada might have the toughest decision of everyone just because it's the first time Canada's men's team mm. is going to be at the World Cup since 1986. And the men's program has never been this popular. They have never looked this good. We have players mm. playing on this team who are among some of the best in Europe. Like Alfonso Davies is this like TikTok star who is the most marketable athlete in the country. Like normally we think, oh, maybe it's a hockey player. No, it's a soccer player, like a, like a young soccer player who plays in Germany, who is. So like, I don't know if you want to go out and say like, this should be a time of celebration. I don't think that's necessarily our job as journalists to right. celebrate these players, but definitely you, you kind of have to talk about the strides made from you know, when, when the program was in obscurity and, and you couldn't, even, they weren't even thinking about making the world cup to now where people are trying to see how could, they could do in the group stage. But at the same time, yeah, like the, the idea that 
they have to do this in in 2022 at the, at Qatar, where it's under a massive cloud of controversy. It definitely makes it uneasy. And I'm very curious about how some people are going to cover it. Like like TSN is going to be all over this for sure. How is Matthew Shinetti going to go about covering these types of stories? Like, I, I, I think about that a lot. I'm not on that beat, but like, is it a situation where you have your reporter just on the sideline, just covering the game, but then you have request head step in and be like, well, these are the conditions or this is what's going on, but are they even allowed to do that? Right. Like because of, you know, they're able to get the rights is 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 FIFA going to look down on them and be like, hey, what are you all doing with the, with this type of story? I think there are more and more people who work in the industry now that at least that I've seen on these types of stories who are a little bit more conscientious of that fact. Maybe it's also not a one size fit all kind of solution. Exactly. Maybe you need something different in Qatar that. But I think didn't quite work that well, for example, with the China Olympics, where people were just like, yeah, let's just cheer on the athletes. And then, but people were so uneasy with the China part of it. (laughs) I I felt like the general level of enthusiasm around those Olympics, maybe pandemic also played a role, but it was just, those were awkward Olympics. We just, we just went through. Oh, for sure. Yeah. And I feel like maybe not being able to figure out that question, how do you are not, you know, betraying Athletes who are just athletes and also address the political situation of it is, is I guess, the dilemma there. Maybe we're going to learn from that and trying to do things differently with, with other events. Where do you think this whole conversation that we're just having, you know, is this sparking anything for you when it comes back to that whole Hockey Canada story? Like, how should we be doing things differently for, for, for that specific story? Is there more deep digging we should be doing on that specific story now that we've just opened it up. I'd like for us to do that. I'm happy to say that I work for a publication that is trying to do that and is trying to do digging on that Hockey Canada story. I'm also happy that I think more and more people, at least younger people, are are taking an interest in these stories and, and want us to ensure that we cover them right. Maybe I'm optimistic. My hope is just that because of what we've seen through the Kyle Beach situation, through people like Sheldon Kennedy, who have gone forward with the abuse that they've had while in the junior ranks on their way up to being NHL players, because we know those stories are out there. We know as journalists or people in the industry that we should do our best to, to kind of bring them to light. I mean, I don't think it's necessarily journalist's job to affect a culture, but maybe as a result, hockey's culture can be, I guess, kind of directed into a better direction. Because I think if you look objectively from a distance and see all the different stories that have come out from it, you can make a fair conclusion that it's not necessarily the safest place to come up from. And this is a sport that we consider to be our shining number one sport in Canada. Like this should be something that is safe for people to come up through in in junior and and the people who play the sport shouldn't be doing despicable things like what's been alleged in this lawsuit. Like this should be a much better shining example of what this country is about. This episode is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. Trust is important. There are a lot of mattress lies out there, a lot of mattress liars And I I, I didn't intend the pun, but it occurred to me that there is one as I was saying those words. Listen, I am not lying to you. Uh, I have uh, experienced the Douglas mattress. It is an exceptional mattress at a surprisingly affordable price point. 
It is a mattress that sleeps cool. It doesn't have that weird thing in the summer where the mattress gets like an oven. It's a very good product. It's delivered to your house in a box. You don't have to go to a big mattress store. It is a medium firm mattress, which is what Canadians prefer. And it comes with a 365-night trial and a 20-year warranty. What more can I tell you? Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health. Right now, there is an opioid crisis. Right now, there is a mental health crisis. But right now, it is Mental Health Week. And what that means is you can do something about these crises. You can help people. You can help CAMH save lives. They offer treatment with dignity, and they are doing cutting-edge research. I don't know if anybody listening to this is untouched by this crisis. You can see it in the downtown of every city in this country. You certainly feel it in Toronto. This is not something happening to other people. These are our friends. These are our communities, our families. We are all touched by addiction. We are all touched by the mental health crisis, and we all share responsibility to do something about it. Helping CAMH is something you can do about it. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where nobody is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help them treat addiction and build hope. Julian, is there anything you'd like to duly note for us today? The first one, a bit of a trigger warning, is this might actually discuss uh, sexual assault. But one story I saw in the LA Times a couple of days ago surrounds this woman named Amy Kaufman who shared her story of um, the abuse that she withstood at the hands of her former husband, who many sports fans, or at least baseball expos fans, may remember as Jonah Carey. Just, like, I didn't really know Jonah that well. I had met met them a couple of times. But I think a lot of people who were into this person obviously did not know that stuff like this was going on. And to see what Amy has done since what has taken place, using her story to share it with others and and turn herself into a domestic violence counselor, I think is extremely brave. And there's one part in the story, actually, with regards to how we think about Jonah Carey, where she, she basically makes the point that, like, you know, we need to start changing that mindset where instead of thinking of somebody and thinking, like, hey, like, why would this type of person be doing this? Like, why do we think of this person? We didn't know this person would be able to do this. It's just, well, we have to kind of start changing that mindset to there's no way that this victim should be making all of this right. stuff up. Like, it's a, just right. a kind of a question of just kind of transitioning over to more believing the victim and not just thinking that what they're saying could be absolutely ridiculous. And what's kind of weird for these stories, you don't normally expect a kicker, but there is kind of a, of a kicker at the end of this piece. I'll just kind of read it really quickly here. One day, Amy answered a call from a woman, a baseball fan, who had heard about the Jonah Carey case. The woman was not sure what to do in her own situation. She wondered aloud what had become of the woman who had been married to Jonah Carey. Just so you know, I'm Amy Kaufman, and I was married to Jonah Carey. Kaufman told the woman, there are ways out, and you can be okay, and I am very much okay. And I think that was just like a a really good way to, to end that story. And again, to highlight how brave she has been going through this whole ordeal, which has been so public I think over the last like three years or so. So that's one story I just wanted 
to highlight, more importantly, just to highlight Amy's bravery in, in speaking out for what she endured. Thank you for sharing that. I feel like we need more stories like this in the context, especially of like everything that happened with Johnny Depp and Amber Heard. There's a lot of women who are just scared to share their stories now that this has happened. So hearing and seeing that there are still some women who are who are doing this work and going out there and being vulnerable and having the courage to speak out is really uplifting. Duly noted, Julian. Emily, is there something you'd like us to duly note? Yes, there is. I've been watching the coverage, I don't know if you've seen, probably, of the lineups, actually, in front of the passport offices, I think across the country, but I've seen mostly coverage of different passports offices here in Quebec, people literally camping uh, out in front of the Guy Favreau building in downtown Montreal to try to get a passport most of the passports being issued only being issued to people who have flights within 48 hours or even sometimes even 24 hours. So it's been a big mess and there it's a big political story. But I was just wondering, I think a lot of us are wondering, how is, does that get covered in comparison to other stories where a lot of other people are also <laughs> standing in line and not getting the right service? I saw yesterday there was, you know, Mario Dumont, one of the big TV hosts here in Quebec, saying that, you know, he went on the site because his daughter was in line herself trying to get out of the country for, for basically vacations, which is good. But I'm just wondering, you know, what kind of coverage are people who are waiting in line for? I don't know, food banks, it's been a thing as well, or people... People were standing in line for, you know, employment insurance as well. Was it was a big deal a couple of months ago? People are still waiting to get their permanent residency. Those are not necessarily the lines that, you know, get a lot of coverage. I'm not dissing on people who are waiting for passports. I'm also not dissing on people who are waiting in line at Pearson Airport. I'm just saying that sometimes I feel like we cover more issues where journalists themselves are part of the demographics that is impacted. So yeah, good on people to, I guess, cover the passport lines, but maybe there's other things as well that we could cover with the same kind of depth and, you know, scare. And, you know, if we were covering people waiting in line to get into Canada at the first place in the same way, maybe we'd have different records when it comes to, you know, human rights. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Duly noted. Is there another thing you'd like to duly note for us? Another story I'm thinking of is the NBA draft. And we're at a point in this country in Canada where it's not a surprise to see Canadians get picked, but there's one player in particular who I think deserves a lot more attention, and his name is uh, Benedict Mathurin, who is from Montreal, and he has the, there there is a likelihood he could be the highest drafted Montreal basketball player ever taken in the NBA draft. Uh, Bill Wennington, who played on, on Michael Jordan teams of the 90s and won championships, I believe was taken 16th overall in uh, 1985, and he stands as the highest taken Montreal player ever chosen in the NBA draft. But like, I, I think if you go around to, you know, different basketball, younger basketball fans now, I don't think they resonate. They don't really think that much about Bill Wennington. That's not who they have on their on their bedroom walls, right? They might think more of of a Ken Birch or Lou Gens Dort, who is thinks very highly of, of Ben Maturin, actually. Uh, guys who are in the league right now, Chris Boucher, another example of that. And the fact that like those three players, by the way, Birch, Dort, and Boucher, all undrafted, and they are you know looking from a distance at what a player like Ben could do in the league, being drafted as high as he could be at the upcoming NBA draft this week, 
Like that's a big moment, I think, for for Montreal basketball, especially for 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 Quebec as well, where we still live in a province where hockey is such a big deal, where the provincial government decided to put together a committee to try to figure out, okay, what can we do to get more hockey players to play? Or they they tried to go to the NHL and, and have a meeting with Gary Bettman to figure out, you know, if they could have a franchise return to Quebec City and have hockey being played there. There's still it's still rooted in, in hockey, but there is a basketball culture that is developing in, in the city and in the province. And, and with all the different opportunities that are starting to come up for, for these players, maybe it'd be cool to see more attention be brought to that. Well, I think Julian, you're just actually pandering to me (laughs) right now. Uh, I mean, you're like, yeah, it's great that there's like people from Montreal who are doing great in the NBA and also like, especially like a Haitian Montrealer who's doing great. Uh, obviously with the last name Mathurin. I was Googled him. I was like, yeah, of course, he's a homie. Oh, yes. Yeah, I feel like, thank you for indulging me <laughs> with that duly noted. <laughs> It is duly noted indeed. <laughs> of course. Let's uh, talk about the uh, crypto crash. Absolutely. And I think calling it a crypto crash is pretty apt right now. Uh, seeing Bitcoin fall well below its peak prices during the pandemic. The largest economy on earth is financial services. I think crypto will be the 12th sector of the economy within 10 years because it adds so much liquidity, so much productivity, so much transparency, so much auditability. It's so much better than what we're doing right now. That was a clip from the Financial Post and Kevin O'Leary. So Julian, we're going to be talking about crypto for a little bit. There's a lot of bad crypto news that are happening. And still, I feel like a lot of us are having a hard time figuring out what that actually means. Let's name the elephant in the room. I think a lot of us are still uncomfortable talking about crypto period, whether it's going good or bad. First of all, what are your personal, I want to say feelings, but how do you approach any conversation on cryptocurrency at this point? I, I'm, I'm glad you, we were acknowledging the elephant in the room because when I see cryptocurrency, I'm like, ah, I don't know what this means. I don't know. <laughs> I genuinely just don't know. I just, I'm like, I, I know friends who are into it. They're into NFTs. They're into that sort of stuff. No judgment. I, it's cool if you're able to, to get money off of that. That's great. I just, I, I guess maybe it's the journalist thing where like you see math and then you get really confused and it's money. So you get even <laughs> more tense about that. But Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I I don't really have any general feelings about cryptocurrency. It is interesting to see if, where it is at right now. But yeah, I just I just don't have general thoughts on cryptocurrency. I don't. Okay, but you know that it's been crashing. Yes, that that I've seen I've seen that for sure. Okay, so I feel like that's where most Kenyans who don't know a lot about crypto are at. They know maybe two things. They know first that crypto is not doing well right now. That's one thing that has been talked about and I think would reach people beyond the crypto bubble. And then the second thing that they would know is that Pierre Poliev is a person that just loves to talk about crypto and says that crypto is amazing. If you are in Alberta, maybe you've heard as well about your own provincial government sharing a lot of optimism around cryptocurrency a couple of months back even trying to invest in having some industries that are linked to the crypto industry, basically going into Alberta, trying to make Alberta a hub for the cryptocurrency sector is also something something that happened. Crypto has had boom, now it's crashing. From a journalistic standpoint, the question that I'm asking myself is, first of all, 
are most of us literate enough in cryptocurrency to have <laughs> a responsible coverage of this? Are people educated enough on the risk that investing in crypto implies? Have basically journalism or economic journalism done enough of a good work to make sure that general ordinary Canadians that have lost a lot of money in crypto in the last months are were actually as informed as possible in terms of the risk that they were taking? I can't imagine there are too many of us journalists who are up to date on every single thing to do with cryptocurrency, right? Because it feels as if there's yeah. so many of them coming up. Maybe if you have a general understanding of how like the blockchain works, I guess, then then yeah. But like with, with all the different types of cryptocurrency that comes up, like we're long past the days of like Dogecoin. Yeah, I, I don't know how you could seriously be up on every single thing to to do with it. But also just looking at how it's at this point now where it's it's at a bit of, it's at a crash. Like it, I guess it's just like with everything else. If you're if you're putting in money into stocks or whatever, there's a risk that comes with it. And seeing people and hearing stories of people who have put in significant amounts of money into cryptocurrency, and now they're at a point where they are not making back some of that money they thought they'd win. Like it's fascinating. It's not just the fact that political people or governments were so gung ho on making this like a thing. This is something that like celebrities and even at certain athletes at a certain point were were bigging up and and were were saying was a was a massive thing. The four simple words that have been whispered by the intrepid since the time of the Romans. Fortune favors the brave. I can't tell you everything. But if you want to make history, you gotta call your own shots. It's not to, to dump on it and say, like, hey, you know what? Like, you know, it's completely done forever. Maybe something does happen where it does shoot back up. But like, I think one reason why so many people were were enamored with it, and we were starting to see like wealth simple ads on like Hockey Night in Canada for it, was just because of the people who were throwing their name behind it. And and yeah, I don't know if enough people were, you know, this is even just going beyond journalists. If people were able to firmly, you know, educate themselves on this, partly because of the people who were endorsing it. Yeah, that's the thing. And those endorsements are made public and people learn about those endorsements sometimes directly through social media. And sometimes it's also because those endorsements are being reported on. You know, crypto has, has crashed in the past. When I look at just Bitcoin itself, it's, it's crashed. I think it's eighth crash that, that it's having right now over over the last decade. So it's a thing that happens. And I'm just wondering, you know, now that it's down, obviously hindsight is 2020. It's maybe e a little bit easy to look back at pieces that were written where people were just writing about how would it be the government of Alberta or how, you know, Pia Podiev or some, some of the people were talking about crypto and just writing it as, well, this person is saying that crypto is great, but there wasn't necessarily a lot of context in certain pieces around the, the risk of it. I'm just wondering about that. You know, where is the room for us to be writing about this in the future in a way that acknowledges the risks rather than just just write the news and not give people context on, on the history of that and what that actually is so that more people get educated on it. Do you think that's a fair part of criticism or do you think I'm just asking for too much? No, I, I my next question to that, and I don't know if it's the right question to ask, is at the time when we were writing these stories of cryptocurrency as glowingly as we, we had it, did we know the risks were as they were. 
maybe we did. If they did, then we definitely shouldn't have. But I, I also wonder mm-hmm. if a lot of those people writing stories like that, or right. just generally, we didn't really know that it would get down to a point where it would crash. I think if people anticipated that because so many people were getting into it, maybe some of the value would dip. But I, I think definitely in hindsight, like, absolutely, it would have been good for us to just collectively us to acknowledge these risks. And I think now if you're talking about cryptocurrency, if it, even if it does go on an upswing, yeah, the responsible thing to do is is to acknowledge that, you know, there is some risk that comes with going all in on cryptocurrency. I think there's that's something yeah. you should definitely acknowledge. Yeah, there's definitely some currencies that have crashed in the past and some of them have gone up and down, but it's just like having that kind of history nearby when you're making those decisions to invest or not would, would be useful. But at the same time, and that's the other question that I have on, on what's going on is whether people who, and I'm just going to make a broad generalization, right? But I feel like there's a there is a crowd of people who have been more interested in crypto and that that crowd overlaps all of the time with people who don't trust mainstream media and, you know, financial institutions. That's why they're into it in the first place. They're looking for alternatives to what, you know, old school, you know, their grandpa kind of economists would have advised them to do. And so I feel like sometimes it's kind of pointless. I don't even know if warning against crypto in the media (laughs) would actually, or, or, you know, making sure that people are as informed about it as they could in traditional media would sometimes deter, actually, some of the people who've been investing in it the most, because at least part of that crowd is also people who just don't trust the mainstream. That's definitely part of that crowd that's definitely behind, for example, the Pierre Polyev campaign. There's an overlap between his supporters and and people who don't trust, you know, traditional institutions. And so I don't even know if trying to do a better job of educating the public in terms of economic journalism is actually reaching the target audience. I think as long as entities we deem to just be reputable regardless of whatever mainstream media outlets they they look at as long as those people continue to in, endorse that or, or nfts or mm-hmm. anything like that like that's still going to go on like literally as we're talking about this right now a report surfaced from uh, tsn's darren dreger that the national hockey league may or may not be having some agreement over nfts like they may have something in the works with that and like if you're a hockey fan and you're into that like yeah you're gonna get excited about it so I, I think we should definitely need to provide those risks. But at the end of the day, a lot of people are just going to make their own conclusions about these sorts of things right. and they're going to buy into it. I mean, at the end of the day, you can we can provide the risks all we want. But if you want to put your money into NFTs or Bitcoin, that's it's up to them. Yeah, I even saw this piece in the Globe and Mail from 10 days ago titled now that Bitcoin is dead again is a time to buy. Like literally, <laughs> basically advocating for the fact that because the value is, is low now, it's probably going to pick up again anytime soon. So now would actually be a good time to invest. So I feel like even when it's not doing great, there's some people who are going to, I don't want to say that it's religious, but there's there's people who, who believe in it so much that regardless of what it's actually doing, they're, they're going to be they're going to be willing for to to go into uh, another ride. The other thing that I wanted to maybe have your thoughts on, when you do an analysis of the media coverage of crypto in Canada, it's really interesting that it's really hard to find the name of Pierre Poliev not linked to any crypto news. So basically, because if crypto's doing good, it helps the Poliev campaign because he's been advocating for it so much. But even if it's plunging, 
then people are like, okay, so what does it do to the Pierre Polyev campaign? So basically, regardless of what happens with crypto, like he gets some publicity, good or bad, or he gets some sort of a name recognition on his own campaign because he's managed to link himself to one issue so much that now it's really hard, at least in this country, to talk about one without talking about the other automatically. I would just imagine that maybe because he's tied himself to that horse of cryptocurrency, that for him to just kind of detach himself from it might also reflect kind of badly on him. I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah. When it's high, there's a lot of excitement and people talking about it in terms of opportunities, including people in government, but especially some journalists as well. And then if it crashes, then there's a whole bunch of pieces that sound like a big I told you so. And then there's not a lot of analysis as to why and what are the risks if it does pick up again. Like I'm not sure where we're really learning from that cycle. So I'm personally feeling like there is a, I don't want to necessarily say a middle ground missing, but but some sort of a more in-depth analysis that's actually going to be accessible to people who are scared of numbers, uh, which is, I think, a lot of us. And to be able to understand what's the bigger story behind the gimmicky maybe aspect of it. I don't know how much of whatever development goes on with crypto if it does upswing, how much that might influence my thinking of it, or if I think, hey, if it's going to go up, is it time to buy? I'm still, Emily, I'm, I'm still kind of scared. I'm still probably just going to stand on the <laughs> sideline and just be like, you know what, man? If you guys are into this stuff, if people, just you guys are into it, that's on you guys. I'm just going to stick with putting my money in a bank. Well, I prefer actual roller coasters than, than to the one of the markets. That is true. <laughs> Me too. That's Shortcuts for this week. Thank you for joining me. We are obviously on Twitter at CanadaLand and you can email jesse at jesse at CanadaLand.com for any feedback that you want to give. He reads everything that you send or so he tells. <laughs> Where can people find you, Julian? I'm on Twitter at JKA McKenzie and McKenzie is spelled M-C-K-E-N-Z-I-E. I am a staff editor for The Athletic, but I occasionally write for the website as well. So you can check out my work there. And uh, I podcast for a whole bunch of different places. So subscribe to The Chris Johnston Show wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe to Zone Time uh, through the Yahoo Sports Hockey podcast uh, feed. Be sure to check out those shows. And uh, yeah, check me out. Um, people can also find me on Twitter at Emily underscore NI. And I'm also at Emily at Kenneland.com as well if you want to write to me directly. This episode is produced by Eviva Lessard with additional production by Tristan Capacchioni. Our managing editor is Kieran Househorn. Theme music is by So Called. Syndication is by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at cfuv.ca. And if you like what we do and you'd like to receive ad-free versions of all our podcasts, please support us by hitting the link in our show notes or go to canadaland.com join. Thank you for supporting Canada Land. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada Land and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures and it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada Land. We need you to, 
And so for this month and this month only, you can become a Canada Land supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com join. And thank you.